In our day, it can be difficult to tell whether a news headline is real or fake. Have you come across this? Maybe you've shared fake news or received fake news, didn't realize it was parody or satire. So in that spirit, let's play a real quick game of real or fake. I'm just gonna read one headline and I, we, I should have handed out like, you know, cards or something. Or you can, one headline and I want you to see if you can tell whether this is real or fake. And the headline is, women can now give birth inside Disney World. And the article explains how Disney is planning on opening a maternity ward in Disney World in Florida so that women can give birth and while giving birth look out at Cinderella's castle. So what do you think? Real? real? I, I've got one for real. Fake? fake. Yeah. All right. It turns out it's fake. <laughs> but I'll, I'll admit it got me for a second. I was like, really? I was shocked. Uh, some of these fake headlines are very believable. I could see Disney doing that, and I could see people paying for it, so. But it got me thinking, there's a much better way to be born into the kingdom. And that's a really dumb way of segueing into what we're talking about this morning <laughs> and introducing our text. Because so our passage this morning is about how we gain entrance into the kingdom, not Chief's kingdom, not the kingdom of Disney, but the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. How, how do we get in? How do we gain entrance into the kingdom? Which is another way of saying, really, how are we saved? And if someone were to ask you, uh, maybe you're having a conversation with a friend, somebody asks you, you know, how is it that we're saved? How, what do Christians believe about that? How would you respond if somebody said, how are, how are people saved? One good response will be to take them to John chapter 3, because this chapter answers that question. So our summary statement this morning, you're going to have to forgive me, our summary statement is a question. I apologize in advance to the grammarians. Our summary statement is, how do we receive eternal life in the kingdom of God? How do we receive eternal life in the kingdom of God? That's what we're going to answer this morning as we work through this chapter. Entrance into the kingdom of God, receiving the kingdom of God, was the hope of Israel. Like, that was their great future hope, that God's Messiah would bring God's people into God's kingdom. That's the hope of the Old Testament, that the kingdom will come and we will enter into it. So Jesus comes and answers, well, how does that happen? How do God's people enter into God's kingdom? How do we receive eternal life in the kingdom of God? We're going to work through this passage in three large chunks, and each chunk will give us one answer to that question. And then after we work through the passage, we'll uh, talk about three truths about Christ that are seen in this passage. There are a lot more than three, but we'll just highlight three. And then three points of application. So we'll answer this question, how do we receive eternal life in the kingdom of God? And the first answer is found in this famous interaction that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And we read these famous two words, born again. In order to receive eternal life in the kingdom of God, we must be born again. We need rebirth by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's our first answer. How do we receive eternal life in the kingdom of God? Through rebirth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. I'm going to start at 1, stop at 12. 
it's a weird spot to stop in your Bible. Most of your translations, like all of your translations, will have different stopping points. That's because in this chapter, it's very difficult to know when Jesus stops speaking and when John, the gospel writer, starts and he starts writing. So different translations will actually have different points in which Jesus stops speaking and John starts. So they'll stop the red letters at different points. It's all kind of one thing. In the Greek, we didn't have red letters, right? It was all the same color ink. In truth, all of your Bible should be red letters because every word is the word of Christ, okay? But all that to say, I'm stopping at a weird spot. You'll see why, hopefully. Go through 1 through 12. Verse 1. Now there's a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit, or gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Last week in John 2, we saw that Jesus actually performed many public signs that John didn't record. He recorded, Jesus performed many miracles, signs showing who he was, and a lot of people believed him. And it appears that Nicodemus is one of those people who was, at the very least, compelled, if not convinced, by Jesus' miracles that something was different about this Jesus and maybe worth following. Who is Nicodemus? He is a Pharisee of the ruling council. And Pharisees, as we know, they were a religious party. They are kind of a group. They had Pharisees, Sadducees, and Pharisees were one of the prominent religious parties. And the ruling council is just the ruling body. So this is be kind of, it's a bad analogy, but kind of like saying he was a Republican in the Senate or a Democrat in the House. He was part of, he belonged to one of the parties and he was a member of the ruling class. He was a bigwig in Israel. Somebody with religious and political authority. And he comes to Jesus pretty confidently. And what does he say? We know something. We know. And he's one of those people who, maybe you've met these, uh, the confident ignoramus. The person is really confident, but actually doesn't know what they're talking about, not fully. Nicodemus is kind of there. He's really confident. We know something about you, Jesus. We know that you must be sent from God, and you must have God's power. 
which is not wrong. It's just very incomplete. He doesn't fully grasp who Jesus is yet. Uh, you, there must be something special about you. You have the power of God with you. Uh, the old phrase, close, but no cigar. Like you're, you're part way there, but you don't fully grasp it. So Jesus is going to enlighten him. <laughs> Why does he need enlightening? Notice what, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. When does he come to him? At night. Maybe Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night because he's ashamed and wants to come hidden. I think John records that for us to tell us something about Nicodemus and the state of his mind. He is in the dark. John 11.10 later in the chapter says, It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. One of the major themes in the book of John is light and dark. So when John says he's coming at night, it's a way of saying he's still in the dark. Famously later, Judas will enter or exit the upper room at, at night. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. It's a way of saying he's enveloped in darkness and Nicodemus is still in the dark, though he's confident. So Jesus will enlighten him about what he should know. What he should know is that if he is going to enter into the kingdom of God, if he is going to be one of God's people truly, then he must be born again. That word for again could also very easily translate this way in other places, from above. And I think Jesus means both when he says this. When he uses that in the Greek word anathem, whatever, but it means, it can mean either again or from above. And I think Jesus means both. You must be born again and you must be born from above. You must have a birth that is not of here. Now, this would be a shocking thing for a Jewish person like Nicodemus to hear, and it's why he wrestles with this. Because it was the expectation that all Israelites would enter into the kingdom. The kingdom was their inheritance. So unless a Jew, unless an Israelite explicitly rejected God... Uh, unless in that case he rejected God, but otherwise, if you're an Israelite, you enter the kingdom just by virtue of birth. You are born an Israelite. The kingdom of God is your inheritance. That's your hope. That's your future. And here Jesus comes along and says, you, Nicodemus, you need something more. Beyond your knowledge, which you think you have, beyond your uh, place in the Jewish community, Beyond the fact that you're an Israelite, you need something else to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and the spirit, Jesus says. Now, when Jesus says, he says you must be born of water and spirit, he is not saying you must physically be baptized with water to enter the kingdom of God. Correct? Our whole biblical theology will tell us that we are not saved by the physical act of being baptized, as important and I would say essential as baptism is. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In the Old Testament, water and spirit are both symbols of being cleansed and born again, and they're used often together. So, for example, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. You see what Ezekiel is saying? I will pour water on you and cleanse you. I will give you my spirit. Then you will live in my land, in my kingdom. Jesus is saying the same thing. Unless you're born of water and spirit, you will not be in the kingdom. You must be born again, born from above. And this is something you cannot produce, control, or even see. You probably know that in Greek and in Hebrew, spirit is the same word for wind. Same word. So Jesus makes the analogy here. Can you see the wind? What do you guys think? Can you see the wind? No. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see leaves shaking and trees bending, but you can't see the wind itself. So it is with the spirit. Can you control the wind? Well, you can turn on a fan, but that's not really what we're talking about. You can't control the wind. That is something only God controls. He blows it where he wills. So it is with the spirit. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is you came here thinking you know something. Let me tell you what we know. And Jesus says, this is what we know. And he's kind of putting Nicodemus's words back on him. Oh, you know something? Well, this is what we know. I think Jesus speaking on behalf of him and the Father and the Spirit. We know this. You must be born again. And only God can do that. You can't control the Spirit. You can't see it. The Spirit moves as God wills, and it's God's work to do. Let me ask you, have any of you had a pet that had babies? Anybody had a cat or a dog that was pregnant and had little cats, little dogs? Okay, I, I knew you guys, and that's other ones. You've had some kittens before. Now, when your cats got pregnant, did you ever say to yourself, I hope they don't give birth to gerbils or bats? No, that's an insane thought. Why is that an insane thought? Because we know basic biology, cats produce kittens, and they can't produce anything else. And dogs produce puppies. Dogs can't give birth to spiders. That's not how it works. It's basic 101 biology, right? And what Jesus tells us here is the flesh only gives birth to flesh. Fallen humanity, corrupted by sin, can only give birth to sinful people. The flesh begets flesh. So if you are to enter into the perfect spiritual realm of the kingdom, you need something else other than your natural birth. You must be born from above. You need the spirit to give you a different kind of birth because the spirit will beget spirit. And all of that is God's work.
Nicodemus has a hard time with all of this. And Jesus says, you should know this. You're a teacher in Israel. Haven't you read Ezekiel 36? You must be born of water and the Spirit. Haven't you read Isaiah 44.3, which says, For I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Water and Spirit. Born again from above. This is what is required to enter into the kingdom of God. Not the fact that you're born an Israelite. Not because you know some stuff. The Spirit must be at work to give you a new birth. Jesus says, this this is the basic stuff. This is like the kingdom 101 stuff. I can't begin to tell you about the glories of the kingdom if you're still stuck on how to get in. So let's get the 101 stuff out of the way. You have to be born again. That's the first thing needed for entrance into the kingdom of God. Rebirth by the power of the Spirit. Next, verses 13 through 21, what's the next thing needed for entrance into to receive life in the kingdom of God? The second thing needed is belief in the cross of Christ. So the first part is all God's work. This is God's work to do, to give you the Spirit. You can't do it, only he can. Here, Jesus is going to emphasize what he has done, but also what we have to do. You have to believe. Now, here's the part that's on you. You must believe. We must have faith in Jesus. We need belief in the cross of Christ. We'll begin at verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has, not been, has been done in the sight of God. So according to some traditions at the time of Jesus, the Jews or Israelites believed that some of the Old Testament saints had gone into heaven and would return with revelation. Elijah's one of them. But even some believe that Abraham or Moses or Isaiah had gone into heaven and would return at some point with revelation from heaven. And here Jesus puts a stop to all that and says, no, there's only one. There is one who has truly seen the glory of heaven and the kingdom of God, and I am him. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who comes from on high and I will be lifted up again. He goes back to the story from Numbers 21. Many of you are familiar with the story, weird one, of the fiery serpents. As God was 
walking with his people, Israel, and they were journeying to the promised land. There was uh, rebellion. People rebelled against God, rejected him, and rebelled against Moses. So God sends what? Snakes. Like Indiana Jones' least favorite animal. I think that's two weeks of Indiana Jones references. I apologize. I'll mix it up. with um, That wasn't in my notes. God sends snakes, and snakes bite the people, poison them. What is, so what Moses does is intercede for them, praise to God. God tells Moses, take a wooden pole, put a bronze serpent on it. Anybody who looks to that bronze serpent, if they look to that serpent in faith, they'll be saved. Saved from death by snakes. Weird story, right? Jesus goes back and says, well, because all the Old Testament is about me, this also is about me. Just as the Israelites can be saved by looking to that wooden stake that was, with the serpent lifted up on it, so people will be saved when they look upon the cross that I'll be lifted up on. That's what Jesus is telling them. I'll be lifted up on a wooden stake, and anybody who looks to me in faith will be saved from the poison of sin. Here's a trivia question for you. How many verses are in the Bible? I didn't know this offhand. I had to look it up. So this is according to Google, which I'm trusting completely. There are 31,101 Bible verses total. About 23,000 in the old, 8,000 in the new. Of those 31,101 Bible verses, which is the most well-known? John 3.16. I heard that Judge Notless E.B. Judge was in the running and was making, kind of closing the gap, but I think it's still worldwide, John 3.16. So as I read this, you, were all, you could say it with me earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know it. It is ingrained in our hearts and our minds and our heads. And I'm going to mess with you a little bit because I think that's not the best way to translate it. Most of our English translations will never change it because they don't want to mess with something that's so ingrained in us. But there's one translation at least that does alter it a little bit. And I think it's actually a better translation. Because a better translation, I think, would probably be not for God so loved the world, but actually for God loved the world in this way. The so there, the way John uses it, is not a word of degree. This is how much God has loved the world, though certainly God has loved the world beyond comprehension. That's just not John's point or what he's emphasizing here. What John is actually emphasizing here is that God loved the world in this way, in this manner. The so is a, not a how much, but how. This is how God loved the world. In his great love, this is how God has expressed his love in this way. I'm looking back to what Jesus just said about being lifted up, looking forward to what Jesus is about to say about God sent his son. How in what way, in what manner has God loved this fallen world? His son died on the cross for it. It certainly answers the question of how much. But John's point here is just this is how. God has loved the world by sending his son that he be lifted up. John 3.16 is not really telling us how lovable we are. 
is telling us what God did to save us because he loves us. How has God loved you? Jesus died for you. And this is where we have a choice. We may not control the spirit, but we control our choices. Regeneration, that work, rebirth, it's God's work. Here's our work. We have to choose whether or not we're going to believe what God has done. Believe and have eternal life. How do we enter into the kingdom? By belief. Simply by faith. And this is the scandalous thing that Christianity teaches. That we do not enter into the kingdom because of how good we are. It is the scandal of the cross, the scandal of our faith, that entrance into eternal heaven, eternal perfection, is not based on how much we know. It is not based on how good our reputation is. It is not based on how religious we are. Entrance into the kingdom is simply based on what do we believe? Who is our faith in? And the world has a hard time with that. Because what will the world teach you? Well, surely good people get into heaven. My aunt was a really nice person. You're telling me she's going to go to hell. And Jesus teaches... Well, what does she believe? Who is her faith in? Because as wonderful as your aunt was, as kind as your grandpa was, as wonderful as your friend is, they're born of the flesh. They're born corrupted. They're born stained. And unless they have rebirth from above and faith in Jesus Christ, they will not enter the kingdom of God because we do not enter based on how good we are because we can't be good enough. So if you're trusting in your own goodness, There's no hope for you. There's no good enough by our own power to be good enough for eternal perfection in heaven. It must be from God in Christ. He must do the work for us. So we have to have faith in him. That's the only way we enter into the kingdom. And that is Jesus' teaching. So if you don't like it, you have to take it up with him. Entrance into the kingdom is not dependent on the quality of your religious life. It is based on faith in the one who lived perfectly for you, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. The only way of salvation is this. Believe that Christ died for you and you'll be saved. We just have to choose whether or not we're going to believe. And then, following, we're going to have to choose whether or not we're going to walk in the light. That's what John's saying in verses 19 through 21 there. We can walk in darkness or walk in the light. Look at verse 21. I like the way the ESV translates this verse. Listen to the way ESV translates it, and I think this is helpful. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I think that emphasis is important. So John is saying, whoever does what is true comes to the light, they believe and they do good things, they walk in the light and live righteously so it can be clearly seen as works have been carried out in God, which is a way of saying by God's power, by God's grace. Not by their own power, but because God has helped them. They're carried out in God. What John is saying here, we have a choice to make, we have to believe, and then we have to walk in the light. But as we do that, remember, you can only do that in God. 
not because you're morally superior, not because you're better, because God has enabled you to do so. And as we do that, as we walk in light, it is a witness to God's grace in us. Some will hate the light. Some will choose darkness. Some will choose not to be exposed by the light because they are afraid, they're embarrassed, they're shamed, they're proud. So they hide from the light. And they hate the son who exposes their sins. Some will reject Jesus and hate him because they do not want to admit their need for a savior. But you have to choose whether you will believe in the cross of Christ and your need for it and then walk in that light. Second thing necessary, belief in the cross of Christ. Third thing that we need to enter into God's kingdom and receive eternal life. Verses 22 to 36, acceptance of the supremacy of the Son. We must confess that Jesus is supreme and salvation is in him alone. That's what these verses are all about, 22 to 36, just that Jesus is supreme. Listen to verse 22 and beyond. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized now John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So we now have moved away from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We're going out into the Judean countryside where both John and Jesus are baptizing. And just as a side note here, uh, notice why they choose where they choose to baptize. Because there's lots of water. The only reason you'd need lots of water is because you're not sprinkling. I'm just, just a shot. At, uh, <laughs> they're immersing, right? Right? We can all, okay, I'm, I'll stop. Um, just battling with other Christians there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, move on. Well, Jesus and John are both baptizing people. A couple of John's disciples have an argument. I don't know over what or what specifics. Some argument about ceremonial washing. They come to John, then they also notice, hey, John, have you noticed this other guy's ministry is a little bit bigger than yours? 
Like your disciples, they're all going over to him. How do you feel about that? Church down the road's getting bigger, John. How are you going to respond to this? What's John's response? What do we have that isn't given? What do you have that has not been given to you? The food you eat, who made that? You might say, I made it. Where did it come from? It came from the earth and the animals and the plants that God made. The job you have, the hands you have to work, the air you breathe, all of it comes from God. Your work, your family, your ministry, none of it belongs to you. It is all from above. John knows this, and he says, this is my ministry, it's from above. And he goes into this metaphor about the bride and the bridegroom. In that time, we talked about last week, the groom was responsible for kind of providing everything. His best man, his, his friend, his companion, the best man in that role, that guy was responsible kind of for making sure everything went off without a hitch, for making sure the, the wedding proceeded as planned. Uh, so if things broke along the way, the best man was kind of supposed to uh, make sure it went smoothly and fix any problems. And according to some documents, the best man even had the role of walking the groom to the chamber of the bride and standing guard to make sure the marriage was consummated and would rejoice when he heard the voice of the groom uh, delighting in the virginity of his bride. Those of you who are engaged, I, I don't recommend this practice or this tradition, but that's part of what was going on at some places at the time. The best man had this responsibility to make sure the bride and the groom were wedded. There's some Babylonian Sumerian documents that even have laws that prohibit explicitly the best man from marrying ever the bride. It was a law, the best man was never to marry the bride. In fact, if you study Judges and Samson's story, this is probably what gets Samson so righteously angry at one point because his bride is given to his companion, his best friend. It was a violation. The best man, the friend of the groom, is not to touch or marry the bride. John understands this. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. The bride isn't mine. The bride belongs to him. It's a lesson for every minister, every church member. The bride does not belong to you. Do not try to take the bride from the groom, Jesus Christ. And John's a good theologian. He knows his Old Testament and knows the bride is God's people in the Old Testament. And God is the groom. So he says, I, I got to decrease. I have to get out of the way. Jesus He's the groom. He must increase. 
He's the one who is above all. And John finishes speaking of the greatness, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is the one from heaven. John says, I'm earthly. I'm the one from earth. I can speak of earthly things, unlike Nicodemus. John knows the earthly stuff. He knows the 101. He's got that down. Jesus is the one from heaven. Only he can speak to the kingdom stuff. Only he can tell us what the kingdom is like. He is above all. His speech is God's speech. He has the spirit without limit. In the Old Testament, prophets would have the spirit for a time. God would grant his spirit for a moment so they could speak the words of God. But Jesus has the spirit without limit. There's no ticking clock on Jesus and the spirit. Jesus always speaks with the spirit's power because God gives him the spirit without end, without limit. So he always has the speech of God himself. Whatever Jesus says is God's speech. Whatever Jesus reveals is God's revelation. Jesus himself, in fact, is the revelation of God because he is the one who the father has placed everything in his hands. He has all things under his authority because God has given him authority and he is the one that the father loves. So Jesus is everything. He is supreme. This is what John is telling us. He's the one who represents God. So he must increase and I must decrease. All who believe in him will have life. All who reject Jesus, God's wrath remains on them. This is the last text note I'll make. Notice this. What does John say about the wrath of God? That it remains on all who reject Jesus, which implies something. God's wrath is already there. Right? John is saying, for everyone, this is the natural condition. God's wrath over sin, his judgment over sin, remains. It's there. The question, the only question is, how is it taken away? It's assumed that judgment awaits sinners and sinful people. And all are sinful people. So the only question is, how is that removed? How do we remove that hand of judgment that awaits that is only removed by worshiping the Son by faith in him? There's only one who takes it away, Jesus Christ. So third, acceptance of the supremacy of the Son is required for entrance into the kingdom. All right, we've only got a couple minutes left. Three truths about Christ, three points of application. Are you with me? I saw a couple head nods, so I'm going to go with that. First truth. Salvation is of the Lord. It must come from above. Just as the Spirit blows and the wind blows as God wills, salvation only can happen, rebirth can only happen by God's work. It must come from above. So we're not surprised when we see people reject God and we don't judge How dare they reject Jesus Christ? What idiots they are. Well, unless God works, they're stuck. Just like in your life, unless God worked in you, unless God came and by his grace gave you spiritual rebirth, which you possibly cannot produce, you have no power to, unless God does that, then we're stuck. So it's upon God to do the work. So what is our job? We pray that he would do the work of regeneration. It's not something we can manufacture or produce. It is his work to do. Salvation is of the Lord, and it's from above. It's not something that we produce from the ground up. It's something we receive from top down from him by faith. Second truth, salvation is Jesus' mission. This is what he was sent to do, right? We read that this is why God, Jesus was sent. God sent him to save, and I believe he accomplished the mission. 
he is accomplishing the mission. And I believe when he said it is finished, that meant he actually accomplished salvation. There's a whole lot we could get into there, but I'm going to pass. But salvation is Jesus' mission. It says he did not come to, he did not come to condemn the world. Which can be challenging because there are a number of places we'll read where Jesus will say, I'm the judge. <laughs> right? Those of you who know your Gospels, there are plenty of other places where Jesus says, I am the judge and I will bring judgment. And you say, well, I thought your mission was to save. And we have to remember there are two advents of Jesus, two times he comes to the earth. First, in salvation, when he returns in judgment. But first, he came to save. That was his mission. Third, salvation is in Christ alone. He is the only one from heaven. You may have heard people talk about how many ways are there to heaven? Aren't there multiple ways to heaven? The answer really is there are no ways to heaven. <laughs> There's no path we can walk up that's going to get us there. It's only from above from Jesus Christ, who's sent from above. He is the only one who has all of God's authority, who speaks the words of God, who completes the mission of God, is in Christ alone. He is alone, our Savior. Three points of application. What grace is there for us in this? First, we must be humble. As John the Baptist was humble, not holding on to his own ministry, not holding on to his own disciples, not holding on to his own church, but pointing them to Jesus. So you, parents, you with kids, how will you parent your children? Will you try to instill in them a conviction of your greatness, your perfection, or Will you make it your mission as a parent to convince your kids of the glory of Jesus and constantly point them to him? Whatever your work is, whether you're a parent, whether you're a friend, your occupation, your vocation, your responsibility as a Christian is to do what John did, to say, I must decrease, he must increase. If you're a teacher or a minister, your primary role is to get out of the way so that people can see Jesus. So when I preach sermons, I never want to hear, oh, that was wonderfully orated. Any idiot can orate. Any pagan can orate. What I want to hear people say is, I know Jesus. I know the word and I know God because of what you've done. That's the goal. How can we highlight Jesus? We must be humble. Second, we must walk in the light. And I'll just ask you, are you noticeably Christian? John, those verses 19 to 21 call us, it's the verdict, we have to walk in the light. We are saved by grace, but you must walk in Christian righteousness. Are you noticeably Christian? Are you distinguishedly Christian? We don't parent like everyone else. We don't do marriage like everyone else. We don't work like everyone else. We don't do ethics and cultural engagement like everybody else. We should not look like your average Republican or Democrat. We should not look like your average middle class suburbanite. We should look distinct like Christians, because we walk in the light because of what Jesus has done. 
This doesn't mean we're superior. It means we're walking by God's power. Last, most importantly, we must be born again. So let me ask you, are you born again? Young and old, I would invite you to just look at me. Let me ask you, are you born again? And I'm not asking, were you raised in a Christian home? Nicodemus was raised right. Nicodemus knew the Awana verses. Nicodemus went to seminary. Nicodemus had the right heritage. It does not matter if you were raised in a Christian home. That's a good thing if you are or were. That's a blessing. It's a gift from God. We don't want to look that or neglect that. But it's not sufficient. You have to be born again. So have you been born again? Have you been reborn by the power of the Spirit? And if you say, I don't really know, then this is your invitation. Ask the Lord to make you new and to give you a new birth. And you say, well, what does that look like? I said, well, I can't see the Spirit, but I see its effects or his effects. So when you are born again, it just starts changing you. New desires, new affections, new joy, new faith, new longing to be with the Lord, new worship. You start to love the things that Jesus loves and love the people that he loves. So you actually love being around Christians. You love being around lost people. You love people because God loves people. Have you been born again? And I would say, have you been born again like Nicodemus? Because I think Nicodemus was. I think there's a happy ending there. We'll read it in John 19, verses 38 through 42. Nicodemus is right there with Joseph of Arimathea, giving Jesus a proper burial. I think this conversation saved him. I think this text can save us and save you. And I think if you walk with this with others and point them to the Jesus of John 3, you can save them too and give them entrance into the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that we would be born again. And I know and rejoice in the fact that most of us in this room have been born again. That is your work, your grace. We celebrate it. So those of us who have been born again, Lord, we ask that you would just continue to grow us, uh, to keep us by your grace, by your spirit. May your spirit not uh, cease to be at work among us and in us. And then, Lord, help us to walk in the light to hold fast to our faith in the cross of Christ, the one who was lifted up for us. To humble us 
so that we continue to know that Jesus is supreme and this is all about him. And Lord, if there are any who have not been born again, we beg you to do that work. Send your spirit among us and through us to others so that you would bring new life, that we may see and know you and walk with Christ in the kingdom of God. Amen.